I have always been one of those people that love to hear the stories of how people have met, how husbands and wives have met. I think most of us love those stories. It's one of those weird things that guys that never want to talk about anything when you're playing golf with them will occasionally ask their friends, so how did you and your wife meet? Everybody is sort of fascinated by how God brings two people together in marriage and the ways that he works, and they're all very different. I uh, had a friend who used to joke whenever people asked him, he's a minister in the PCA, how he and his wife met. He said, well, we had the same corrections officer. And people didn't know if that was a joke or not. That's probably actually happened. I, mean, I am sure people have met having the same corrections officer. And as we consider how God has worked in our own marriages and how God has worked throughout the centuries and throughout millennia in bringing together husbands and wives in marriage and the ways that he has providentially guided, we come to a place like Genesis 24 and we realize that this is one of the greatest stories of how God has ever brought a wife to her husband. It's one of these magnificent stories. In fact, the chapter is so long, this being Abraham's last um, act, the chapter is so long that you get the sense that this is one of the most important aspects of the record of the life of Abraham, now dealing with the covenant child of promise, Isaac. You get that the length of this chapter is lending itself to the fact that this is a supremely important account, what God is doing here, what Abraham's doing, what Eliezer, Abraham's chief servant, is doing, what Isaac is doing, what Rebecca is doing, all coming together in this chapter, this marvelous story of God's grace and his sovereign working and his bringing a bride for the covenant son. It is all working together. You know, it's a very interesting chapter if you would contrast it with what is taught there in Genesis 16. And we looked at that uh, several weeks back where there is no one who does anything good in Genesis 16. Abraham listens to Sarah, goes into Hagar, Ishmael's born, everybody is sinning, everybody is rebelling, and yet God is faithful. Here in this chapter, you have sort of the contrast with that. Everyone is trusting the Lord. Everyone is walking by faith. Everyone is seeking the Lord. Everyone is committing themselves to the promises of God. Abraham is committing himself to the promises of God. Eliezer of Damascus, his chief servant, is committing himself by faith to the promises of God. Isaac is out in the field meditating on the promises of God. Rebekah is hearing what the servant is saying about the promises of God, and she is responding in faith as she is responding to that question, will you go with this man? There's a, there is a... Um, fairly well-known sermon, and it became a chapter in a book uh, by Brownlow North, an Irish evangelist, called Will You Go With This Man? And North says that the entirety of this chapter is moving to that great question. Will Rebecca respond in faith to the question, will Rebecca go to the son of Abraham? Will she bind herself to the one who is seeking her to be a bride? And as we look at this chapter, as we consider all the details and all the reiteration of the story that the servant is telling as he is seeing God providentially work, we really see those two aspects. We see those in the covenant family who are living by faith in the promises of God in this Abraham's last act, and we see God providentially fulfilling his promises and going before and preparing everything in order to fulfill everything that he had told to Abraham. Abraham is at the end of his life. Abraham understands that there's not much more. Abraham doesn't have a special word from God at this point. It's very important 
for us to understand this this morning, that there are times when Abraham has uh, this direct, immediate revelation from God. And, and yet here, he is living by faith in the ordinary. That's the ordinary way God has worked in the lives of his people, that his people would learn not to live by seeking out signs and visions and voices and all of those things that so many in the Christian church are longing for constantly and staking their faith on. But Abraham is living ordinarily by faith now in the word and the promises of God. God has revealed everything that he wants Abraham to know. And Abraham is now, though he had faltered many times before in the same regard, he has now learned that he must live by faith. When there's no voice, when there's no sign, when there's nothing spectacular, Abraham must live and act by faith. Sarah has died. Abraham knows that God has promised that in Sarah, the seed would come, the redeemer would come. Now Sarah is dead and Isaac has been born. Ishmael has been sent away. And Abraham knows that it is dependent on Isaac getting a wife. God has not said, take a wife. He has not told Abraham to find a wife for Isaac. But Abraham knows that the promises, in order that the promises would be fulfilled, are dependent on Isaac himself having a wife so that he can have offspring, so that the redeemer can come. And as Abraham understands that, and Abraham understands that he is called out with his family out from the land from which God called him, that he is not to return there. He has been living as a sojourner in Israel. He has been picking up his tent and moving place to place to place. And he knows when the servant comes back to him and says, "Should if, what if they're not willing for the girl to come back? Should I take Isaac to the land to which you're sending me to find a bride? And Abraham says, no. You're not to take my son back. That's not because Abraham uh, dreaded the thought that he wouldn't have fellowship or the presence of his son. Abraham is acting in faith on the word of God and the promises of God. Everything that Abraham says to his servant is an expression of Abraham living and acting by faith in the ordinary, everyday aspects of life. And there are huge lessons for us there. I think what Abraham does here and what Eliezer will do and what Isaac does and what Rebecca will do are instructive to us because they are teaching us that, that very difficult lesson that we have such a hard time learning that we are to live the day in and day out activities of our lives in dependence on God in light of the revelation of his word. John Piper says there are three things here that Abraham is following. And he says he's following not a direct revelation from God, new revelation from God, but he's following the trajectories of what God has already revealed to him. I think, I think Piper's right, that what the believer has to do and what Abraham is doing, he's taking those things that God has told him, and he realizes that God's promises are sure, and he realizes that God is the covenant God who will fulfill everything that he said and that he is absolutely trustworthy. And now he has to find a, a wife for Sarah, and what he's doing is he's following these trajectories. She has to be from the covenant family. She has to be a believer herself. Abraham will not allow his son to go off and marry one of the pagans of the land. That's probably because back in Genesis 15, God said that he was going to give the land to Abraham and to his descendants, and that in 400 years, he was going to wipe out the Canaanites, the, the Amalekites, the Amorites, because of their evil and their wickedness. And so Abraham takes that, and he follows the trajectory, and he realizes 
my son cannot marry one of those that God says he is going to destroy because of their wickedness and idolatry and because of their unbelief and perversions. And then Abraham realizes that, that uh, Isaac needs a wife and that the seed is dependent on God saying, in Isaac shall your seed be called, chapter 17. And again, in chapter 22, in Isaac shall your seed be called. And, and he's following that trajectory and realizing Isaac needs a wife. And then he's realizing that God has said, don't return to your father's house or to the land from which I've called you. And so he's following that out and he's saying, okay, I know that God doesn't want Isaac to go back there. You see what he's doing? He's tracing out the trajectories of the promises God has given him. And in the same way, we have to learn to do that. Sinclair Ferguson remarks that his best-selling book, surprisingly, is his little book, Discovering God's Will. And he says, you know, it's, it would be almost humorous to um, tell one of the Puritan ministers of the 17th century that we need a book called Discovering God's Will because they all understood very clearly that God had revealed everything he reveals in his word. They had a high view of the law of God. They had a high view of the promises of God, that they were constantly pushing the people of God back to the scriptures and saying everything you need to make the decisions that you need to make are found in the scriptures. And Abraham is modeling for us what it is for a believer to live in light of the covenant promises as we make decisions, as we think about our own children and bringing our children up to know the Lord and who they'll marry and uh, what, what jobs are, are lawful and not lawful for us to enter in on and what activities we can do and what's beneficial and advantageous and glorifying to God. We have everything that we need in the trajectories of the word of God. It's all there. And we have to get into God's word and we have to follow the tracks that he has laid down for us instead of looking for a direct word. He gives us every word that we need from him and we have to learn to follow those out. And Abraham is modeling what it is to do that by faith. But then we have this servant, Eliezer. And there have been men who have, I think, rightly likened Eliezer to John the Baptist. Um, here, here's a man, and this is remarkable. We met Eliezer of Damascus, or, or heard about him, back in chapter 15. Ab Abram, at that time Abram, had no children, was waiting on God to fulfill his promises, and remember, Abram goes to God and he says, Lord, what are you going to give me, seeing that I go childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Now, Abraham's very rich, very rich. And here is his chief servant over all his other servants, over all those that work for him, over everything in his house. And Abraham understands that before he had Isaac, before he had Ishmael, Eliezer would have been the next one to inherit everything that Abraham has. And instead of setting his heart on that, and instead of becoming bitter when God gives Abraham his son at 100, who's going to be the heir, Eliezer exhibits what it means to be faithful as one who is sent to do the will of his master. Eliezer goes to Abraham, and Abraham says, swear, put your hand here by my thigh. It is probably with reference to proximity to circumcision and the covenant promises and that God was going to fulfill those promises and that this was what the master was sending the servant to look for, was for that heir of the covenant promises signified by circumcision. And, and Eliezer submits himself, and he is in every way like John the Baptist. He has a he must increase and I must decrease mentality. What a model for us. What a model that is for us.
who are often groping for number one, groping for what we want, groping for uh, the next way to surpass somebody else. And here's Eliezer. And not only does Eliezer do what Abraham asks, but he does it devotionally, he does it prayerfully, he does it by faith, and he does it in dependence on the God of Abraham. Now that means several things. That means that Eliezer was a believer because Eliezer had heard the gospel promises in the home of Abraham. And it means that Eliezer was well-trained by Abraham. It actually says a lot about Abraham. It actually teaches us that Abraham was very diligent in instructing his family. You, you don't become a man like Eliezer who just automatically starts praying to God, Lord, God of Abraham, God of my master, who, who go with me, whose presence is with me, uh, fulfill and find what my master has sent. You know, it's actually a very rare thing when we think about um, J.I. Packer wrote in 1988 a very interesting article in which he, he talks about America having the resources uh, to fulfill the evangelization of the world. And he says, you know, we have more Christian influence, more churches, more money, more people, more resources than ever in human history, he said, and, and in this fascinating article, he basically says, but will materialism stop that from happening? And I think as we watch it, we see that's exactly what's happened. We have more money, we have more resources, we have more gifts, we have technology, we have more things at our fingertips, and yet what an awful indictment how little we depend on the God of grace to do what he alone can do. We just think if I just do more of my own strength, Give more money, do more, we'll just do this. You know, there's a reason why that psalm is in the Bible. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. And Eliezer has learned from Abraham to rely on God. In fact, Eliezer starts asking all the what ifs at the beginning. When Abraham goes to send him, what if, what if? He's a, he's a picture of us. Well, I know I need to obey the Lord here, but what if? What if this happens? What if it goes wrong? What if this doesn't go right? What if this happens? What about this? And what about this? And then we start to what if our way out of walking by faith and obedience to God. We what if. You know, I, I do wonder sometimes how much of our time we spend speculating on things that aren't true and will never happen. I mean, if you could actually calculate how much of our lives, thought lives, are spent in speech, speculating all the what-ifs. And, and it's, it's amazing. Abraham doesn't say to him, look, in all probability, this is going to happen. Neither does he say, no for sure, without a shadow of a doubt. Because when Abraham finally sends him, he says, well, and if it doesn't happen, come back. <laughs> We're going to trust the Lord. Abraham is confident in going forward and trusting the Lord. But here's what Abraham says to Eliezer, and this is what, this is what propels Eliezer forward in walking by faith and dependence on the God of promise. Abraham says, know for sure that God will go with you. That's, that's the key. When I'm going through difficulties and trials... I have to coach myself that the Lord goes into the furnace with his people. He says, when you pass through the fire, I will be with you. 
When you go through the waters, the waves will not overflow you. When Joseph, at the end of this book, same principle, the covenant God promised his presence with his people. Jesus fulfills that, doesn't he? When he says to the disciples in the Great Commission, Lo, I am with you always, even till the end of the age. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. How can we go into the mysteries of the future? How can we press forward not knowing what the next day has in store for us? We go knowing that the Lord is with us. At the end of this book, Joseph, thrown in prison, unjustly treated by his own family, rejected by everybody, falsely accused, and there's this refrain, Yahweh was with him, the Lord was with him, the Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. And what Moses intimates is that Joseph knew that the Lord was with him. What enabled Joseph to go through all of the hardship he went through? He knew that the Lord was with him. What enabled him to be betrayed by his own loved ones, his own family, the church? His family was the church at that point. He was betrayed by the church. The Lord was with him. The Lord stood with him. And notice that Abraham says to Eliezer, listen, Verse 6, see to it that you do not do that. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house, from the land of my kindred, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. He will go with you. He will go before you. He will guide the process. Depend on him. And Eliezer does just that. It's actually remarkable. There is, Eliezer will lay out the fleece. We'll talk about that in a second. But he doesn't lay out the fleece in departing on the journey, does he? He goes. He goes. It's a long journey. It's an arduous journey. It's a costly journey. It's a tiring journey. And Eliezer goes to find a bride for the covenant son. And he goes and he comes to the well of water. And there we read that he lays out that fleece. He puts God to the test. He doesn't do it sinfully. He does it in faith. You know, one of my closest friends... I always think about this. He told me when uh, he was the one that taught me that you could pray for attributes when you're praying for your spouse. I was like, I didn't even know you could do that. He said, I'm praying for a wise, godly, humble, beautiful, uh, Christ-satisfied, prudent, he, like 27 adjectives. I, I, it was a lot. I was like, dang, I can do that? So I started doing that. And um, I didn't even think you could do that. <laughs> I was real simple. I was like, Lord, I just really need a wife. <laughs> He's praying very specifically. I was like, that's a good idea. And, and he met his wife, who is an amazing woman, who is all of those things. And, and, but he wanted to be sure. Now, he's charismatic, and, and so there's, there's a little mysticism here in my friend. But he wanted to be sure that she was the right one. And so he didn't tell her that he wanted the specific kind of study Bible. But he really wanted the study Bible. So he prayed. He told me one day, he said, I'm praying that my, you know, this, this girl is now wife, I'm praying that she would buy me this certain study Bible so that I know she's the one. I am not kidding you. And, you know, we can laugh, but this is exactly what Eliezer does. And, and within like two weeks, she, he didn't tell anybody else but me. She bought him that Bible. I am not kidding you. He said, I'm not hinting it to her. I'm not talking about it. Now, there is a sense where we have to be careful with the sort of Gideon fleece putting God to the test, but that's, that is what Eliezer does. He goes and he realizes he is looking for a certain kind of woman. He's looking for a godly woman, a compassionate woman. He's looking for a woman who will be a good fit for Isaac. 
And so he prays that the Lord would have her be the one and that she would not only give him water, but that she would water the camels. And she does exactly that. God has already prepared everything. We're going to see that in a minute. I, I love the way it says, while he was still praying. He had just finished the prayer and he sees Rebecca. But here's the point. Eliezer, like Abraham, is depending on God to do what God alone can do. And that should be integrated into every aspect of our lives, for our children, for our spouses, in work, in the church, in everything. Um, I often wonder, you know, what would, how would things, we know God's sovereign, we know he's ordained everything, but how would things turn out if we were depending on him in prayer instead of just talking to everybody about what we think? That was one of my, I don't make resolutions, but a resolution I made this year was to pray more with my friends in ministry that I talk to rather than just having phone conversations with them. Because we need to rely on the Lord in everything and for everything. And Eliezer does that. Very interesting, as we look at this family, this covenant family, and we see them relying and trusting, we, after we find Rebecca, and I'm going to come back to Rebecca in a second, I want to put her at the end real quick of this section, but, but we find Isaac, and, and we're not told a lot about Isaac, but we're told one thing. When, when Eliezer's coming back and he's bringing Rebecca with him to be Isaac's bride, we're told that Isaac was out in the field at night meditating. He was out in the field at night meditating. Now, many, many, many years ago, I was reading this chapter, I realized what Isaac was doing and what he was meditating on in that field at night. I believe that Isaac went out to that quiet place in the land of promise and he was going to look up at the stars because God had said to his father that in Isaac, your descendants are going to be like the stars in the sky in multitude. And I believe that Isaac was most likely going out to that field to meditate on the covenant promises in light of those things that God gave him in order to stir him up by way of reminder. He is waiting. He knows that his father has sent his servant off to find him a bride. He knows exactly what's going on. And Isaac is committing himself to the Lord as he waits. I think that there is a reason why the Puritans wrote so many books on meditation on scripture because they know that that's one of the, the, the least understood and most necessary aspects of the Christian life. It's not enough to just read the Bible, just read through it, know it, shoot it off, spout it, memorize it, We've got to meditate on it. We've got to think about, turn it over. That's what the psalmist, the psalmist has that idea when he says, you know, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of God night and day, that he, he'd turn it around, he'd think about every angle of what God might be saying here. He'd be praying that God would open the eyes of his heart to see wonderful things in his word. That that's where real spiritual growth comes. Isaac is, just that one little phrase, he went out to the field at night to meditate is teaching us a world of spiritual discipline for a believer. And so you have Abraham acting in faith, you have Eliezer acting in faith, you have Isaac acting in faith, and then you have Rebecca acting in faith. You know, it's conceivable that Rebecca could have married someone else in the land in which she was. She had never seen Isaac. I do want to say this this morning. Almost nothing bothers me so much as when people take this and try to make this a prescription for how we find a bride for our son, um, Anna and I know someone who told us once 
the most romantic idea I could ever have is that my dad would find my husband and I would meet him on my wedding night. We were like, what? <laughs> it's romantic. There's this well-known story of a Taiwanese believer and she said, you know, I'm glad. I'm glad that my husband or my father picked my husband for me because I would never want to be thought to have chosen him myself. <laughs> um, not the sentiment we're after. But I think we have to be careful. The point is not that arranged marriage is what God is ordaining. The point is that God is working in such a way to magnify the faith. Yes, it becomes a cultural practice for many, 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 many centuries, but to magnify the faith of Rebecca. It is fixated on her faith. She has not seen Isaac. The, her own family says that great question, will you go with this man? She is, in a sense, being offered the opportunity of being engrafted into the covenant family. She is being offered, and this is where Brownlow North went, she is being offered the gospel. The gospel is being held out to Rebecca. She is being asked, will you come to the one in whom the promises of God have been made, about whom the promises of God have been made? Now, I think that it helps us to know that Isaac meets his bride at a well of water. Jacob meets his wife at a well of water. Moses meets his wife at a well of water. And then Jesus, the greater son of Abraham, is found seeking out a bride at a well, at Jacob's well. Um, there have been lots and lots of commentators in Reformed history that have meditated on that Striking fact, why does John tell us that Jesus, the son of Abraham, sat by Jacob's well as he pursued that Samaritan woman, as he came to redeem her and make her part of his bride? He is the heavenly bridegroom. He is the son of Abraham. He is the covenant son. This is why Jonathan Edwards could say, we, we have to learn to read the Bible in light of why did God create the world? God created the world to get a spouse for a son. Do, you, do we read the Bible that way? Do we see that redemptive history is all moving to the son of Abraham getting a wife? That's what Genesis 24 is about. That's the, that's the place it plays. Isaac is the type of the redeemer. And God is now providing a bride for him. God has orchestrated everything. Yes, the redeemer will come through Isaac and Rebekah. That, that is who he will come by generation from by, on his maternal side, and yet, and yet, and yet God is orchestrating and showing that everything that he's done has been planned from all of eternity, and that God is working out his redemptive plan. That's why there's the reference to the, the servant praying and saying, no sooner had I stopped praying in my heart that God had already fulfilled what he was doing. There is this massive focus on the sovereignty of God, that as we go into what is dark in front of us, as we go forward and we go into what we don't know is coming in front of us, we can be confident that the Lord is with us, but that the Lord has already ordained everything for us, and that chief among those things he ordained for us is that he ordained that we would be the bride of his son, that we would be the bride of the covenant son, that we would, we would hear the call, will you go with this man? Every time the gospel is preached, every time Christ crucified is mentioned, Every time you hear me or someone else say, are you trusting in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins? Have you fled to Jesus Christ? Are you living 
in communion with Jesus Christ? Are you coming to him for rest for your souls? Are you coming to him as the one that your soul loves? Every time you hear that, you are hearing this question, will you go with this man? Will you go with this man? Now, there are so many other things taught in here that that we could look at this morning, but I think for us, there are a couple applications. One is that we have got to learn, we have got to learn by God's grace how to live like Abraham, Eliezer, Isaac, and Rebekah, responding to the word that God has breathed out in the scriptures, following those trajectories in all of our decision-making. If, if, if you are hearing that and you say, oh yeah, I do that, no you don't. Because every time we sin, we are not following the trajectory. Every time we worry and fear and fret, every time we get sinfully angry, every time we put our hope too much here and in possessions and things and activities and aspirations and successes, we are not following the trajectories. When we are hoping with being with the bridegroom, And our hearts are crying out, come, Lord Jesus. And we are saying, yes, not only will I go with this man, I long to be with him. When the desires of our hearts are, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better than any of the passing things here, then we will be following the trajectories of God's word in our decisions and activities and parenting and conversations and everything else in our lives. And then secondly, I would just ask if you have responded. Have have you responded? Will you go with this man? Have you said, yes, I will go. I will go with the son of Abraham. I will bind myself to him. I was meditating this week. I had to write a short article about Mary Magdalene outside the tomb on that that first Easter morning and, and, and struck with, struck with the fact that you know, Jesus didn't have to appear repeatedly after his resurrection. He could have, it's conceivable that Jesus could have just told all the disciples, I'm going to meet you up on the mountain, showed himself risen at that one moment, and then ascended to heaven so that they could be witnesses to his resurrection. That's conceivable. But instead, he shows himself repeatedly, and in that first appearance to Mary, you see this beautiful picture of the bridegroom and the bride, She is so enamored with her love for Christ. She is so overwhelmed by love for Christ that there are angels at the tomb and she acts like they're not even there. She says, where have you taken the one that I love? And then Jesus comes and and she is so full of love for Jesus Christ that, that even if she could just be with his deceased body, the one who had redeemed her, if she could just take his body, she says, tell me where you've laid him. Let me, and then you see, What lays behind her love is his love for her. When he says to her, Mary, and she hears the voice of the heavenly bridegroom, and she knows this is the one my soul has loved, and she clings to him. This is the experience of every believer who has responded to you, will you go with this man? She cleaves to him, and he says, do not cling to me, for I go to my father and your father, to my God and to your God. Um, Richard Sibbs, I'll just close with this thought because you really, this is the essence of what creates that, the love of Jesus for his people. God the Father seeking a bride for his son by calling his people to go with him and to come to him. 
And uh, Richard Sibbs has this great quote. He says, it was, it was love that led Jesus to leave the glories of heaven to go to the womb of the virgin. It was the same love that led him from the womb of the virgin to the cross. It was the same love that led him from the cross to manifest himself in resurrection glory to those that wonderfully loved him. Now that is the essence of the biblical storyline. God, God wants to arouse in us love for Jesus Christ. He wants us to see that we are grafted into the family. And so as we go from this place, I'll just leave you with this question. Will you go? Will you go with Christ? Will you go with this man? Will you come to Jesus Christ? That is the question we are constantly faced with. Will you go to Jesus Christ? Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would grant us grace to see that even the marriage and the great working of your work in redemptive history between Isaac and Rebecca is but a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church and the ways in which you have drawn us to your son, the ways in which you have planned from all eternity that we would find the one that our soul loves. And we pray, our God, that you would show us the glory of the heavenly bridegroom, that our souls would have that same love and longing to be with Jesus Christ as Rebecca did for Isaac. And the woman at the well ultimately did to be with you, Lord Jesus, and Mary Magdalene outside of the tomb. And Father, we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would make us to see and to know the beauty and the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray that our souls would be consumed with the knowledge that you have created us and this world that your son might have a bride. We pray these things in Jesus' name.